Well, hey, everyone. I'm Stephen, one of the pastors here at Grace Church. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. What a wonderful year it's been already, right? <laughs> I saw a uh, meme. There's been a lot of really good memes online just the past few weeks. I saw one this week that said, if 2020 was a car, here's what it would look like. It's this junked up, duct taped car. And that's what it kind of feels like this whole year for us, doesn't it? I've begun to uh, wonder if this whole thing is a conspiracy by homeschool moms who are just trying to force every family in America to homeschool their kids like us. Well, you win. And we're all trying to make these adjustments. And some of you that aren't used to being at home with your kids every day of the week and having to teach them uh, all these different classes that you forgot years ago, you're having to do it. I, I read a tweet this week from a mom that said, you can either have a nice day or you can help your kid with their math homework, but you can't have both. I think that's how a lot of us are feeling, right? Uh, a lot of you have seen your jobs transition from being in a specific office, in a specific building every day of the week, to now being remote and being at home. And you may have a job that that's pretty unusual or atypical for something like that to happen, but you're figuring it out. You're figuring it out because your job was never about a building or your office or a cubicle. Your job's been about you the whole time and the time and the skills and the effort that you put into it. And we're seeing jobs kind of begin to shift and transform because they're not about an address. They're about the person. Last week as we began this series up next, we began uh, looking at the very first few chapters of the book of Acts, and we saw this exact same transition take place where God shifted his presence from a building, a place, the temple, the holy temple that you read about in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, shifting from that to a group of people, the Christ followers, that because, because it's not about the building anymore, it's about the people, the people that matter more. Before the new covenant was established through Jesus, God's presence and his power existed in a, in a specific place. You had to go to the temple, but now, under the new covenant in which we live, a shift has been made, and it's gone from being in a building to being in our bodies. And so if you are a Christ follower, you are like a mini temple of God. Isn't that kind of cool to think about? Like, you are a temple of God. I like to call my temple the temple of doom, but that's mine. Totally copyrighted. You've got to come up with your own temple. And as we continue on in this series, um, I'm really excited because this week we continue along in the narrative looking at um, this group of people and when God gives them a purpose, and it's the same purpose that he gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis, it's the same purpose that he gave to um, the Old Testament prophets, and it's the same purpose that he gives to us today. We'll begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says this, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And we'll, we'll speak a little bit more on that in just a moment. Uh, and all of the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything that they had. Obviously, we can't do that right now, so we are all together online, but uh, we look forward to the day that we can physically be in the same room again. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. Just look at that generosity that they had so compelled 
by God and, and the passion that they had for him, that they just wanted to help as many people as they could. So they, they had this radical generosity right off the bat. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Each day. That's crazy to me. Like, I remember as a kid hearing about my, like, the different Christian friends of mine that would go to church twice a week, and I thought that was crazy. They went every single day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and with generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So you get this picture, this beautiful picture of the church here, that it's, it's like a family. It's not just an activity. It's not just a religious thing that they did, but it's a group of people that see themselves as brothers and sisters, as a family that's working together, that's sharing together, that's sharing their lives together. They gather together in big groups for teaching, and then they share their lives together in small groups every night, eating together and playing together and praying together. That's one of the reasons why at Grace Church we often talk about life groups, because we want you to be able to experience the church the same way that the early church did, the way that God intended, that it's something that we gather together for, and then we scatter into smaller groups throughout the week, sharing our lives together. Because here's the truth, is you cannot accomplish God's purpose for your life without being in community with other Christ followers. And we need that now more than ever. Our life group that um, we began about a year ago in our home, once we started to go online with everything, we moved to weekly Zoom calls on Wednesday nights. And it's been cool that we've, you know, it's not the same. It feels a little clunky at times. But um, because this is a group of people that have committed to being in a group together, we're still logging on and catching up with each other. Um, and having Bible studies and, and even playing games. Like two weeks ago, we played a game that, uh, like you, on Zoom, you can do Pictionary, where you can draw a picture and share it with everybody in the group, and they can try to guess uh, what it is. So we, we played a game where we all went around, and we thought of like a movie or a TV show, then we draw it, and whoever guessed it first won. Um, one of the kids' directors at Grace Church is in our life group, Brandon, and he drew this picture. I, I have to show you it because it is it's so abysmal that it, 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 was, it worried me how bad it was. Um, he drew this picture that was on and on, like we just stared at it. And we're looking at the screen, and he's drawing more. He's like, how can you guys not get this? And finally, he said it was Tom and Jerry, which I, like, I saw it, and I thought, he's terminally ill. Like, this was really, really bad. <laughs> but what I love is that even though we can't be in the same place, we're still making memories together because it's a group of people that are committed to sharing our lives with each other. Just a few weeks before that, we had somebody in our group share that they found out they were pregnant, and we got to celebrate that over a virtual call. It's so cool to me that we're experiencing the community that our church ancestors experienced 2,000 years ago in Acts. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 2. And then the story goes on in Acts 3, and things get even more exciting because another significant shift takes place. It says this, Uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. Just like it said, they, they do that daily. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth, which means he couldn't walk, was being carried in. Each day, he was putting, he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, 
so that he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. And why, why would the beggar go there? Because the religious people in that culture had a reputation for being generous. So he knew that if he camped out right outside the temple for people that are walking in and they're about to give their offering to God, that they're more likely to be generous towards him as well. So he's asking them for money. Verse 4, Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. I don't know if you remember as a kid, if your parents ever said, hey, look at me, eye contact. What does that mean? It means pay attention. What I'm about to say is really important, and I don't want you to be distracted. So Peter's saying, look at me, because what I'm about to say, I don't want you to miss. So I imagine the beggar's excited, because he's asked for money, and he says, hey, right here. Here's what Peter says. The layman looked at him eagerly, expecting money. Verse 6, Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you. At which case, it doesn't say this, but I imagine there was like an awkward pause. But I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and he helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and he began to walk, probably with like one of those confident struts because it's the first time he'd ever done it in his life. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Just imagine this scene. The people that they, they just saw this guy outside, can't walk, and now he's just walking around, dancing in the temple with them. Verse 9, all the people saw him walking and heard him praising God when they realized he was the same lame beggar that they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They're probably thinking, that's the guy that we see every day that could never walk. And now they're just seeing this guy parade into the temple with Peter and John. But here's the significant shift that went down. This isn't really about a healing. Like what makes this story so significant is that Jesus isn't there anymore, and yet his miracles are still happening. Like, he doesn't even have to be there anymore for his ministry to keep going. It's almost like the concept of residual income in business, that you build a business that is able to keep generating income and generating money even when you step away from it. Jesus has almost established a system of ministry that is residual, that when he leaves, ministry is still happening. It's like residual miracles because Jesus has ascended to heaven, and yet his work is still being done. Why? Because he passed on his power. He made a succession plan that allowed ministry to keep happening even when he left. One of the most famous succession plans of all time uh, is a guy named Steve Jobs that many of you know. Whether you know his name or not, he's impacted your life because he's the founder of Apple. In fact, I'm teaching on an Apple iPad right now, so this service is sponsored by Apple. Uh, Steve Jobs, uh, so many people for years before he retired, um, would say that when Steve Jobs finally retires or dies, whichever comes first, like Apple's going to sink because the whole thing was dependent on his ideas and his creativity and his charisma and his innovation. Steve Jobs started to hear this, and years before he retired, he began an internal uh, program in Apple called uh, Apple University um, that developed leaders and that trained employees, and it helped them to, to know what he knew, and it also helped him to identify who the high-level leaders in his organization were. One of the leaders that he found through that was Tim Cook, who he identified, and he began to mentor, and by the time he retired, he was able to turn to the board and say, I strongly suggest that my successor be Tim Cook. 
What happened? Tim Cook took over, and it was like seamless. Like Apple just continued to grow, and now it's larger than it's ever been, even though Steve Jobs retired and eventually died after that. Why? Because he had a strong succession plan. What was Jesus's succession plan? Like he knew he wasn't going to be with us physically in person forever. So what was his plan for ministry to keep happening even after he left? What was his plan after he ascended to heaven? Us. We are the church. Jesus, like God began his work, we continue it. The reason it was okay for Jesus to leave earth and go up to heaven was because he moved his power from a place to a people, and then he gave his people a purpose. And their purpose, our purpose, is this. Tell everyone who Jesus is. And that's the purpose that he's given us. And he doesn't leave us alone in this. He doesn't just say, all right, go and figure it out. I'm going to go up to heaven and paradise and hang out. He actually says, I'm going to give you a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you the power to do this, even when it gets really difficult. Power that allowed these guys to do miracles like healing a lame man. Why? So that the people would listen to them and they would know that they are from God. Why did Jesus perform these miracles as evidence that he was God in human form? He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a great teacher. He was able to do things that no other human could. And that was evidence and affirmation that that was from God. So he gave his disciples the opportunity and the power to do the same thing so that when they taught, they could say, we're able to do something that we wouldn't normally be able to do because we have the power of God with us. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because I don't want you to miss this. There's a lot of misnomers and misconceptions about God's power. Um, There's three things that I do know about God's power. The first is this. God's power is not for your happiness. It's for your holiness. There's a big difference between those two because sometimes those come head to head and you can't have both at the same time. God does not give power like we see in Acts 3 so that we can be superheroes that are stronger than everyone else is. It's not so that Peter and John could show off and everybody would think that they're like the most powerful people in the room. His power is given so that we will become more holy, more like him, more focused on his mission in our lives, refined and sharpened. Number two, God's power is not for your gain. It's for his glory. If someone ever tries to tell you that God has given you power so that you can win a football game, or so that you can ace a test that you didn't study for, but miraculously you have this knowledge to be able to pass it, or so that you can be more successful and make more money, that's a false perspective. Because that's not why God gives us power. God doesn't give us power so that we'll be rich. He gives us power for his own glory. Sorry. Like if you came here looking for a get-rich-quick pyramid scheme, you came to the wrong place. Keep scrolling on Facebook. I'm sure you'll find one that one of your friends is involved in because that ain't here. Here's why. God's power is not about building your kingdom. It's to build his. God's power is not to build your kingdom. It's to build his kingdom. That's why Peter says this next part where he shifts the attention off of him and on God. Like this whole crowd is formed as they've seen him do something that, that many of them have never seen anything like it in, turn, in their entire lives unless they saw Jesus do it. So they're looking at him and there's this whole crowd and he has all the attention of hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people that are watching him in this moment. And here's what he says, verse 12, 
Peter saw his opportunity, and he addressed the crowd. People of Israel, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or our own godliness? See, what Peter's going to do is shift the attention off of him and onto, onto God. He has, a, he has a choice right there, that he can use this moment for his own glory, to build his own kingdom and his own reputation, for his own power, or he can point it back to God and say, none of this was about me. None of my life is about me. My accomplishments, my success in this world, they're not for me. They're so I can give God more glory. A few months ago, do you guys remember football? A few months ago, uh, the college football national championship took place. Um, and it was, a, like, it was a pretty surprising outcome. It was Clemson versus Alabama. And everyone thought it was going to be this like cutthroat, like neck to neck. Like it just close the entire time. And it was a blowout. Clemson won 44 to 16. Everyone's shocked because Alabama's like the college football powerhouse. But Clemson comes in and completely stomps them. After the game, you've got millions of people. It's estimated like over 25 million people are watching this moment right after the game where the Clemson head coach, Dabo Sweeney, is being interviewed. And, and all the attention's on him. People are calling him the greatest coach in college football. Some are saying he's the greatest coach of all time. This is the greatest Clemson team of all time. Like, this is the career moment for him. This is the moment that when he became a coach, you look forward to. And the very first thing he says when the mic is put in his face and everybody's watching him, is this, all glory to Jesus Christ, because I wouldn't be here today without him. So he sees an opportunity to either take credit or divert credit to God. Peter's doing the same thing here. He sees an opportunity, and here's what he says in verse 13. He says, it is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors who has brought glory to his servant, Jesus, by doing that. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. See, the point of this miracle wasn't the healing of this man. It was the mission. It was to draw the crowd so that Jesus could preach. It was to advance the purpose. God's power here is not used so that Peter can look like some superhuman doctor with healing powers. It is to build God's kingdom. That's why Peter takes the attention off of himself and immediately puts it back on God. See, the point of the healing is for what happens next. Verse 14, you all rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. You remembered every day seeing him walking by the temple. Now he's healed. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. So Peter's like, hey, while I have you here, I just want to let you know the guy that you thought was a false prophet, Jesus, you killed him, that was God. You murdered God, but you couldn't keep him down because he was able to heal himself, raised from the dead, and then he gave us the power after he left to do the same thing. That's what you're seeing happen right here. Then, this is the most important part of the whole moment, even more important than the healing, is what Peter does with this opportunity. He says, now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Even though you've rejected God, he still loves you and he wants you to repent. 
even though you've doubted God, he, he still loves you and he wants you to repent. Even though you might be angry at God or questioning God, he still loves you and he wants you to repent. I mean, Peter's preaching this to the very people that killed Jesus. And his message is not, God's furious at you. His message is, God wants you to repent because he wants to know you. He wants to be made right with you. He wants, he wants to connect with you. He wants to have a deep, meaningful, purposeful relationship with you. Repent. Turn to God. Ask him to forgive you. Because until you do, you're an enemy of God. Because you're choosing sin. You're choosing disobedience. You're choosing all of the broken things in this world over what God has for you. So before I said yes to Jesus, I was no different than the crowd that murdered Jesus. But God gives us a second chance. God gives us an opportunity to turn towards him and to be made right with him through repentance. If you never repent, if you never turn from your, your disobedience and, and ask God to forgive you and say that you want to follow him, you're never going to achieve the purpose that he truly has for your life. Like right now, we're seeing the beginning in Acts 2 and Acts 3. We're seeing the beginning of this growing movement, the church, that has withstood all wars and all pandemics and all famine and all persecution that were thrown its way, and yet the movement has just continued to grow, and we get to continue being a part of this movement today. God wants you to be a part of it, and it starts with you repenting and going all in. The story goes on, chapter 4. While Peter and, and John were speaking to the people, this is still the same moment, it's the same afternoon, they're confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. Now, this was the group of people that arrested Jesus and killed him. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put him in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who now uh, believed now totaled about 5,000. And the reason that they say the number of men is because they took a census based on uh, the man who was the head of the Jewish households. Which means if 5,000 men believed, and, and their wives believed who weren't counted in that 5,000, and their kids believed who weren't counted, and some of them had multiple kids, some of them maybe only had one kid, but you start to do the math, this may have been 12, 15,000 people that are now believing and following Christ. In Acts chapter 1, it was a group of 120 that Jesus taught. And he said, I'm going to give you power when the, when the Holy Spirit comes. That, that little group exploded in Acts chapter 2 to about 3,000 people. Now it's close to 15,000 in just two chapters. And the Jewish council, the Sadducees, they're afraid, they're threatened. So they bring Peter in before the council, the same guys who killed Jesus, the same guys who are furious about what he's teaching. And, and Peter just keeps preaching. Like, even though he knows his neck is on the line, even though he saw that his rabbi, his leader, his teacher, Jesus, was killed for doing the exact same thing, he doesn't hold up because he knows it's not about his kingdom, it's about God's kingdom. And after he, be, after he preaches again before them, here's how they respond. Verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that these were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They weren't the spiritually elite. These Jews were. 
These Jewish rabbis had spent their entire lives being educated and learning, learning the, the Hebrew scriptures. These men were just with Jesus for a few years, and yet they spoke with such confidence, with such boldness, with such authority, just like Jesus did. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. I love that verse. To imagine that people might look at my life and recognize me as somebody who was a Christ follower. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing they could say. God's miracle, it spoke for itself. How could they deny his power? They couldn't. Isn't it amazing that the backbone of the early church were ordinary men and women, not like the elite? They were mostly blue-collar workers. They were the overlooked. They were the people that the rest of society had written off. That's who Jesus chose to be the leaders and the foundation of the early church. Why? Because what you really need is to know God and to know his word. That's where it all begins. There's, there's nothing wrong with formal education. There's nothing wrong with going to seminary, and there's nothing wrong with studying the word at a deep level. I have two seminary degrees. I don't know what I learned, but I got them. <laughs> They're on my wall, and they got fancy font, and it's framed and everything. That, does that qualify me to do ministry for God? No. The only thing that qualifies me, the only thing that qualifies you, is the choice when I repented and I turned to God and I said, my life is not about me anymore. It's about you. And God, I want to do everything I can to follow you. The only thing that qualifies me to, to even know God is his own grace. It's nothing that I've done. It's nothing that I've studied. In fact, every morning I've, I've written my prayer that I pray every single morning. And I, the very first thing that I say when I wake up is, God, you are first and I am a distant second. I'm completely dependent on you. God, will you forgive me for the sin that exists in my heart? Will you help me and my family to overcome temptation? Will you help me to put you first? Because I need to be reminded every day that this is not about me, and it's not about my kingdom, it's not about my gain, and it's not about my happiness. It's all about God. The theme of Acts is that God gave you, gives us, gives his followers the Holy Spirit to help us to become more holy, to help bring him more glory, and to help other people to know who Jesus is. He's not looking for the most educated, the most experienced. He's looking for the most obedient. He's looking for the most eager. He's looking for those who are quick to repent because we're reminded of our brokenness. He's looking for the person that is willing to put the needs of others before themselves, the needs of their family and their friend before their own. He's looking for the person that cares more about their town than their own bank account. Some of you are watching, and, and you're not a regular of Grace Church. I'm not, I'm not sure why you tuned in today, but I'm going to say the exact same thing that Peter said at the end of his sermon. Repent of your sins and turn to him. You may have anger in your heart, you may not know all the answers. I don't. But I do know this. The call is, is simple. Turn to God. And, and I believe that if God was standing before you right now, he would say this. Turn to me because I have something better. I love how uh, one of the apostles, Paul, in the book of Romans puts it. He says, don't let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument 
Because give yourselves completely to God, for you are dead, for, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. Some of us, like that language, is we need to hear that. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. What I love about the book of Acts is it's, it's this reminder to me that God began his work, and I can continue it. You can continue it. But it begins with the step of salvation, of asking God to forgive you, of asking God to rescue you from that brokenness. You might feel that pull. You might feel like sin is your master. There might be something in your life that you just can't overcome, and you're not going to be able to overcome it on your own. You have to hand it over to God. If that's you, if you're ready to go all in, In just a moment, I'm going to walk you through a simple prayer that I would pray if I were in your shoes. And you say, God, I'm ready. God, will you forgive me? I'm ready to follow you. Will you forgive me for the brokenness in my heart? Will you forgive me uh, for the disobedience? Will you forgive me for the mistakes I've made? I want to put you first. I want you to be my master, not sin any longer. And if that's you and you're ready to take that step and you're ready to go all in and follow God, then just text all in to the number at the bottom on the screen because we want to follow up with you. We want to be able to send you a Bible and some other resources in the mail. We want to celebrate that decision with you because it's the most important decision that you'll ever make. It doesn't just change your day and it doesn't just change your week. It changes your eternity. So if you've never taken that step, today is your day. Let us know. We want to walk through that with you. It's an exciting moment. God has a purpose for your life, but it begins right there. He wants you to join this movement, and he wants you to be a part of this, a part of this with us. And, and the truth is, he's even wanting to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, his presence with us, so that we can become holier, so that we can bring him more glory, and so we can point more people towards him. God began his work, and we get to continue it. So join with us today. Let's pray together. God, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm thankful that I get to be a part of this, this same ministry that you began thousands of years ago, this same ministry that our church ancestors and forefathers Uh, began that we can read about in the book of Acts. God, today our purpose has not changed. Our mission has not changed. And that is to help more and more people know who you are, to live in such a way that reflects you to the world around us. God, so the people here that are listening right now who have never taken that step and prayed that prayer of repentance and said that they want to follow you, God, I pray that they pray this with me right now. Wherever they are, from their couch, from their living room, I would just pray a prayer like this. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've fallen short. I know that I've made mistakes. Will you forgive me for those? Will you help me to overcome the sin in my life and to, call, and, and to put you in the pilot seat? I want you to be my master, not my sin. Forgive me. Give me the strength to follow you and to put you first. We pray this in your name. Amen.